to When the Stars Disappear, a podcast that looks to scripture for guidance when our lives seem covered by darkness. Our name comes from the story in Acts about the Apostle Paul sailing across the Mediterranean Sea in order to appear before Caesar in Rome. In those days, sailors used the sun, moon, and stars to navigate. But Paul's ship sailed into a storm that blotted out all of heaven's lights, leaving them unsure where they were or what to do. When storms of suffering or doubt overtake us, we can feel like they did. We can feel as if all of the stars that have been guiding us have disappeared, leaving us unable to understand life or know what to do. Our guide as we address these issues is Mark Talbot, a professor of philosophy at Wheaton College. Mark suffered a paralyzing accident when he was 17 and now is writing a four-volume series on suffering in the Christian life. The first volume, When the Stars Disappear, Help and Hope from Stories of Suffering in Scripture, is available now from Crossway and wherever books are sold. Today, Mark is being interviewed by John Bash about what motivated him to write this book. Let's listen in. We jump in in this series to some really important issues on the question of suffering. We're referring back to a very important book by Mark Talbot, and we have him here. And I'm going to start out with what is the key story? Mark, I find behind almost every book, no matter how theoretical it might be, is a story as to why the author found the subject matter worthy of that effort. And I know it's true for this series. So could you begin by telling us a story about what happened to you at the age of 17? I grew up north of Seattle, John, in Edmonds, Washington, which was still a fairly suburban kind of place without too many houses um, having been built yet. And so it was almost rural. And we had a beach in front of us on Puget Sound and a woods behind us. And uh, I spent most of my youth either on the water or back in that woods just drinking in the wonders of God's creation. Among the things that we did was we regularly had these projects. I had an older friend who, with me, we'd have these projects, building rafts and so on and so forth, uh, and uh, would be the way that we'd spend a summer. Well, one summer, we built a rope swing. Uh, the rope swing, in fact, uh, was designed in such a way that you started from a platform about 10 feet up in a tree, and then there was about 10 feet of dirt below that, and then there was a cliff, and it dropped off deeply into a ravine. The rope swing swung out over that cliff. It went so fast that you had to land on a seat that it had in order to be able to hang on. And in fact, you really couldn't get off the rope the first time back. You were too close to the tree the second time you had to, because otherwise you'd have to wait till it stopped and the drop would have been about 30 feet then to the ground. Well, I was on it. <laughs> this would, really, this, this doesn't sound like a great strategy here. I, I, this is no, not, no, right. not a good ending to this story. No, no, think. no. There's not going to be a good ending to this story. <laughs> um, we had just a couple of times had three of us ride the rope together, uh, where one person would land on the seat, the other person would land on top of that person, the third person would land on top of that, with the third person um, only jumping on the first time that the rope came back. 
And I had a young friend who wanted to try this. He was a first-class athlete. I thought, okay, we'll let him be third. So I was on the seat. I had a friend who was straddled on top of me. We came back. Um, my friend waited until the rope hesitated before he jumped. And it meant that the rope was going away from him. And so I caught him with one hand and had my other hand on the rope. We went out to the far end, the far end of the arc, and I realized I was going to fall on him. And the only thing I thought was, if I fall on him, I'll kill him. So I shoved him off one way, and I was peeled off from underneath our other friend. And what happened was my shoulders hit the ground first. It was about 50 feet, I think, and mm. my feet went over my head. Well, it was near dusk, and um, I knew that the kid who had fallen with me had to be hurt. And so I held him down in order to uh, get him um, a little less panicked. And when I was done with that, I looked and I saw that my legs were in this little creek at the bottom of this gully. And in fact, I wasn't feeling anything. I knew right then that I was paralyzed. Man, I mean, how did it, how did that affect you? Because there's a sense of you don't feel this pain because you don't feel anything, right? I felt a buzzing. That was all I felt. There was no pain. That's right. It's mm. interesting, John, how it affected me because it's not the way that something like this, I think, usually affects us. And I need to give you a little more of my story in order for that to be clear. Um, this accident happened two days after the end of my junior year in high school. I was a wild kid. I was regularly getting in trouble in school. I would bring home books every day. I was smart, but would never open them. The things that I did were largely things that gave me some sort of thrill, such as driving at breakneck speeds down back country roads. And I had already been looking forward to college planning to go to the University of Washington. And it was just quite apparent to me that, in fact, I wouldn't even get through a year of college. And the reason I wouldn't was that I wouldn't be disciplined enough in order to do the work. And so I already had looming in front of me this sense of disaster with regard to all of the wild things I was doing and all of the lack of discipline that I had. And so what happened to me was that as soon as I realized that my legs were in this crick and I wasn't feeling anything, uh, all of the distractions of my life just fell away. Hmm. And I found myself realizing that, in fact, uh, this was God's mercy to me to keep me from being able to be so distracted that either I wouldn't make any decent sense of my life or that I might one way or another actually do something that would take my life away from me. And so I found myself feeling God's love from the first moment that I realized I was paralyzed. I don't think I need to tell you how incredibly crazy that's going to sound to the average person. <laughs> I mean, that is just nuts. But but let me ask you this. Um, do we really need suffering sometimes to to grow I, I put it I put it another way when it, when I get to heaven 
I'm going to ask God this whole thing we talk about with sanctification. You know, it's one of our big words. How are we made more holy? How are we made more like God? And we continue to end up hearing suffering in that context. And I got to tell you to the average person, wait a second, you get to grow through. That sounds like the strategy of the devil. (laughs) <laughs> not, not of God. I mean, I, I, I think we ought to do sanctification through chocolate. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's this? Do we need suffering? Uh, C.S. Lewis actually has some really important things to say about that in Screwtape Letters, John, where he mentions that God is not going to allure us with pleasantries because then we uh, aren't put in the choice that we have to make decisions uh, on the basis that something is the right thing to do rather than that it is the pleasant thing to do. What I would suggest with regard to suffering is that for almost all of us, including me in most situations, for almost all of us, we in fact tend to miss what is to be the main point of life. The main point of life is supposed to be for us to live a life in fellowship with God, honoring God, doing what God would have us do. And we miss that because we get so overtaken, so overwhelmed, so interested in the various little pleasantries of this life. What suffering does is suffering makes uh, a stop. Uh, it, it makes life stop in such a way that we have to look up and ask, what is this all about? When suffering comes, that's what it does. It makes us say, wait a minute, how can this be? How could this happen to me? Uh, and in that framework, and usually almost only within that framework, do we start to ask the really important questions about life. David, in Psalm 32, mentions that after he had sinned, when he wasn't willing to confess his sin to God, that God laid his heavy hand upon him. Those are the actual words. Mm-hmm. And, and David's point with that metaphor is that God distressed him, made him sick, until he would finally face up to what he had done wrong. And then when he confessed his sin, and only after he confessed his sin, God lifted his hand. Mm -hmm. Psalm 119, of course, the longest psalm. It was probably written by someone who was quite wealthy and very well educated. And interestingly enough, almost right at the middle of the psalm, the psalmist says, Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I obey your word. It was good for me to be afflicted so that I might learn your decrees. And he ends that confession with these words. I know, Lord, that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. That's why we need suffering. Mm. You know, I'm struck by the fact that 
Your story is something that it's kind of a trump card. Uh, when people talk about suffering or pain, you look at that, I'm a, I'm a paraplegic. This is affecting my entire life. When we hear a story like that, we can get lost in the drama of the rope swing, of you not having a functioning legs. Um, and in fact, you talk in the first chapter about profound suffering. Um, tell me about that but as it relates to your ongoing daily struggles, because your average day is different than mine is. I start by defining profound suffering as experiencing something so deep and disruptive that it dominates our consciousness and threatens to overwhelm us, often tempting us to lose hope that our lives can ever be good again. And then I quote Merriam-Webster's Unabridged Dictionary, which defines a calamity as an extraordinarily grave event marked by great loss and lasting distress and affliction. Then what I do is I note that both calamities, such as my book opens with the story of one of my students committing suicide, and so uh, for his parents, his committing suicide, of course, has been a great calamity, I note that both calamities, such as losing a child to suicide and chronic conditions, such as the continuous care of a severely disabled child or someone's seemingly never-ending struggle with depression, can produce profound suffering. Now, interestingly enough, I've never taken my accident to be calamitous or even really profound suffering, because I had this sense of God's gracious and loving hand being in it from the beginning. But what it has been, what it has been is a kind of steady, unrelenting suffering, not only because of the struggle I had until a few years ago walking, I'm now in a wheelchair all the time, but especially because of the other physiological issues that can accompany paralysis like mine. Pretty significant pain at times, sleeplessness, things like the threat of incontinence and all those kinds of things. Yeah, I, I can't help but remembering that when my son became a quadriplegic, which you know about that story, that I got PTSD. And I went through some of the deepest pain I've ever been through, but part of the pain was what it, well, how can I be worried about my own struggles and my own pain when my son can't move a quadriplegic? I mean, he really can't move, and yet I'm the one feeling the pain. And yet when I read what you have to say, I think you're suggesting the suffering can be good for us. And, and I want to get mad at you when I first see that. A <laughs> couple of points here, John. One is that your experience as a parent of some child that has suffered something really awful in the way of a calamity uh, is quite typical. Uh, quite often, it, uh, it's the people who love us who actually um, suffer more when a calamity happens than the people that it happens to. I remember in the first six weeks of my accident when I was flat on a striker frame where they just turned me over back to front several times a day. Uh, my m mom would come and spend all day at the hospital with me. My dad, as he was coming home from Boeing, where he was an engineer, 
uh, would come in the evening and read me to sleep with the greatest story ever told. I think that my accident was harder on them than it was on me, which actually has an important point to it that we shouldn't gauge how much someone is suffering or how they take their suffering from the outside because we don't know what's going on inside. So it seems to me that your experience was pretty typical. But it seems to me that, in fact, Scripture does say that suffering is good for us. If we read in James, the second and third verses of the first chapter, we read there of the fact that we should rejoice in our suffering. We should rejoice in our suffering. And then James goes on to say that, but let let your patience that is developing in this suffering have full play so that you become all of what God wants you to be, not lacking in anything. If we then turn to Romans 5, verses 3 through 5, Paul says we rejoice in our suffering. And when he explains why, he suggests that there are steps to this, that our suffering produces endurance, and that endurance produces character which is the ability to stand something over a long period of time and not take it to be uh, more tragic than it is. And our character produces hope, which the Holy Spirit pours into us in such a way that we are not ashamed. And that hope of the Holy Spirit properly is hope of the fact that God in Christ will, at the end of time, make everything right and will take all suffering and tears away from us. Mm. It strikes me, knowing you as I do, that your pain has somehow made you more empathetic to others where you could just, you know, trump them with, you think you have a problem, I wish I had back pain. (laughs) Um, I wish I could feel that wound in your leg, but instead you really do have an empathy for the pain that others are going through that's different than your own, don't you? I do, although I think that sometimes empathy may not be the right word for what happens to us in these situations. What happened to me was when I went to college, a year and three months after my accident, I was walking with two canes at the time, or sometimes with a couple of four, forearm crutches. And I had three people who uh, took great interest in me and uh, cared for me as I had students come to me who wanted me to care for them. One was the president of the college, the new president of Seattle Pacific, Dave McKenna. Uh, the second one was Frank Klein, who was the dean of religion. The third was Cliff McCrath, who was the dean of students. I had students who were regularly coming to me and wanting me to help them through usually more or less psychological problems because they felt that somebody, I I think the way that it went was that someone whose suffering was so obvious in the way that I walked would be, as you would say, empathetic to them. But what I found instead was that it was more or less that I felt that given the way that God had shown me such great love and care and was showing it to me through these three men, that I'd be an ingrate if I wasn't willing to do the same for others. Now, empathy, when we can get it, is a great thing. But we can't always be empathetic. But what we always can be 
is we can always remember that our posture to other people is supposed to be the posture that God commands to us, which is that we are concerned about them as those who, if they are not yet children of God, may become God's children through faith in Christ Jesus. If they are God's children, that we help them to grow uh, through the suffering that they have. And so it seems to me that empathy is a great thing, but more important is a sense of what God has done for us and our feeling that then we need to do the same for others. You know, it really reminds me that you can be a model. Perhaps it's not about being empathetic as much as it is as others look at you and see what you've done and what you've faced and get motivated themselves. And and we're going to talk more about that next time. I want to thank you because you get credibility to speak on this subject because of what you've been through, and you've been through a lot, and I just want to thank you. And I look forward to really answering the question next time, should Christians expect suffering? Thank you, Mark. Thank you, John. So even in the midst of profound suffering, we see in Scripture that God is using it for our good and to remind us of what's most important in life. Therefore, we can rejoice in our sufferings and respond with love and care to others who are hurting. Mark's conversation partner for this podcast is John Bash, a shepherd with Standing Stone Ministry and host of the radio show and podcast, Church Hurts And. Remember to put in the and when you look for it wherever you listen to podcasts or at churchhurtsand.org. If you found this content helpful, let us know by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. We'd love to hear from you, and your review will also help others find these discussions as well. This is Lauren Susanto on behalf of Mark and John, thanking you for listening to When the Stars Disappear. Disappear.